Welcome to I Guess We're Grown Ups Now. I'm Carrie Halstead. Do you like my new theme music? Isn't it great? I want to send a big thank you to Kyle Roderick of the goodstuff.fm podcast network who helped me hunt down a few songs and this is the one I chose. Thanks, Kyle. I'm so happy to add a little fit and finish on I Guess We're Grown Ups Now. On today's show, we get educated by a professional educator, Rebecca Benich. She's here to talk about an important adult skill, public speaking. It's a good conversation and I hope you get something out of it. As always, show notes are at goodstuff.fm slash grownups slash 15. Hope you enjoy. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Carrie Halstead, and joining me today is my friend, Rebecca Bennett. Hi, Rebecca. Hey, Carrie. How are you? I'm excellent. Thank you for joining us tonight. Yeah, for sure. I'm very excited to have you on the show. It's not often that... Um, our topic and the person's occupation overlap. So I think tonight is sort of breaking new ground for, I guess, we're grownups now in that um, we're talking about stuff that is pretty directly involved with what you do for a living, which is kind of neat. Yeah. So we're here to talk about public speaking. Um, it's something that I think a lot of people struggle with and are challenged by, and it's Becoming good at it is a skill that is a very grown-up thing to do. So that's why we picked it for a topic for grown-ups. Tell us a little bit about yourself before we dive in. For sure. Well, there's always different ways to go about answering that question. Um, I teach communication courses uh, for the Ron and Jagan Graham School of Professional Development, which is located in the College of Engineering at the University of Saskatchewan. So that's a really long title, but uh, yeah, I'm a faculty member there. So professionally speaking about myself, I'm a lecturer and I teach technical communication courses and I also teach a course on public speaking. So I like to say that I'm a fairly meta person because I communicate about communication and I teach about teaching. So yeah, it's kind of a fun, fun gig I have. I really, I enjoy that. So that's me in a professional nutshell. And ironically, like when you when you told me you wanted to have me first answer the question, tell me a little about yourself. It's funny because when I teach my students how to respond in job interview situations, that is the number one question they dread the most. Really? Yes, they hate that question, which is funny because you think you should be able to say something about yourself, but it's really a hard question to answer when you're put on the spot. Right. So it's, it's a very big question. Yeah. There's so many ways you could go with it. It's yeah, for sure. So that was like the very professional side of who Rebecca is the uh, not so professional side, but more interesting side, I think, is that I'm American and I live in Saskatchewan for some reason. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I have an eight year old daughter who is pretty amazing. And I like to think of myself as a bit of a black sheep. But that is another story for another time. Yeah, exactly. It's a whole other <laughs> podcast, which I'm sure we will do sometime. Exactly. <laughs> do you usually listen to you, I guess, for grownups now? I do, actually. Yeah, I, I've, I've enjoyed the podcast quite a bit because, you know, you and I are, are quite good friends. And so I first, you know, initially listened out the whole, I'm Carrie's friend. I'm going to listen to her podcast. But now I just, I actually enjoy it for lots of different reasons. I've listened to several episodes that have really stood out for me and for various reasons. Oh, yeah. Do you have a personal favorite? Oh, I have, I have several. I really liked Kate's episode on the IUD. Always a popular one. Yes, because she sold me, girl, and I've got the IUD now because of oh it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you got it because of that Totally. Episode. When she told me the whole five to ten years of not having to worry about things, I was, like, sold. That's awesome. <laughs> Changing lives here, people. It is. Yes, yes. Preventing babies one <laughs> one fertilization at a time. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, so I like that one. But, you know, I also really enjoy the ones that you've done just yourself, the monologues, like oh, the yeah. one you did on self-care. And I really like the one you did on uh, knowing when to shut up because if you follow me on Twitter, I have a problem with knowing not knowing when to shut up. So that was a really resonating one for me. Yeah, I think we all struggle with that to a large degree at various times in our lives. So 
Yeah. Um, awesome. So, okay, so public speaking. Yes. Do you have a memory of sort of the first time you prepared a speech, long or short, or, or does it go so far back in your life that you don't really remember sort of a first time doing public speaking? I don't remember public speaking. I remember being involved in like church plays growing up. Mm -hmm. I've had some pretty horrific experiences there. Uh, The one that really stands out was when I was probably six or seven and it was the Christmas play. And I had to give some kind of line from the story of uh, Jesus being born. And it was the first words were, and behold, and I think the rest of it was like, I bring you glad tidings of great joy or something like that. But I forgot the rest of the line. So I just froze and I kept saying, and behold, (laughs) and behold, and it never came to me. (laughs) So, yeah, that was pretty horrible. Yeah, I remember that one quite clearly. Yeah, I guess we get it thrust on us when we're little kids, when we're very impressionable. And maybe that's why people hate it so much is because, is I mean, we're it, we're made to do it at such an yeah. early age. You know, and, and people thought, oh, it's so cute. Look at her. She's struggling. And they're all laughing, you know. And, like, while it's good nature laughing, like, when you're a kid, you just know people are laughing at you. And you get really self-conscious. And, yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, I was in a play when I was, I think, in grade two. It was The Emperor's New Clothes, and I was one of the villains, like one of the people selling the, the invisible clothing. Nice. Selling the nudity. Nice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of person does that? <laughs> apparently, apparently me. <laughs> and I remember a song we had to sing, but that, that's about it. The next thing I remember is there was a public speaking contest held each year at my um elementary school well it was a Mm -hmm. it was a a k-12 school that I was going to and so everybody participated and it was my first year in this school and I did a poem called my cat likes milk and if you google it you can find my cat likes milk so I recited from memory my cat likes milk and ended up winning that nice because I think it was just so cute to see this kid talk about a cat. I guess cat Aww. things are always popular, right? I think you should put that in the show notes. Okay, my cat likes milk. Yeah. Maybe I'll put a picture of what I was wearing <laughs> the night I won too, because that's pretty embarrassing too. I just want to see your hair, girl. That's what I want to see. <laughs> I will make it so. Awesome. Uh-huh. Are there, um, is there evidence on the interwebs of you doing public speaking out there? Are there videos? Oh, no, that's a good question. Um, I know if you Google me, you'll find some teaching videos that I did as part of the university, uh, the Teaching and Learning Center. I'm also associated with them. So there's a couple of videos out there where I'm talking about various teaching tips. And I was actually on another podcast a couple of years ago. So if you want to find more about my black sheepness, you can Google that podcast. Oh, yeah. So an example of you public speaking, not necessarily about public speaking, but but doing public speaking. That's awesome. Yeah, that was like a a British um, podcast, right? Yeah, it was a Christian radio station. And I was the uh, heretic that was being grilled by two Christians. It was actually a really good experience, though, in all honesty. It was quite fun. Yeah. yeah. um, Speaking um, in a debate type. um, Right. Right. Is yet another level up from just delivering a speech or. Well, exactly. And, and I didn't have any questions ahead of time. So it was really kind of directly like impromptu on your feet kind of speaking. So yeah. Yeah. Wow. Advanced public speaking. I suppose. Nice. Arguing, advanced arguing, maybe. Advanced arguing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so why why do you think people dread public speaking so much? Oh, there's so many reasons. Like when I teach my students, uh, one of the first things I have them do is I put them right on the spot and I make them do a quick two-minute impromptu speech, which for some of my students probably is the longest two minutes of their entire term, having to get in front of people and introduce themselves. And I always ask them, why are you afraid of public speaking? Because everyone has some kind of fear. I don't care who you are. You have some kind of dread associated with having to 
put yourself in front of people. And what I find some of them say is the first thing they say is they're afraid to be judged by people. Like they're putting themselves out there and we call that a face risk. And that's the risk you take whenever you communicate of being judged or rejected by how you come across. So a lot of people are just really worried that, like my experience, people laughing at me, I think a lot of people are afraid that when you put yourself out there, there's that chance that people are gonna think you're an idiot. And uh, yeah, so there's a lot of fear associated with that. But what I like to tell my students, um, when they identify that as one of their fears associated with public speaking, is I like to remind them that the audience is actually more on your side than you think. So I like to tell them that because in some ways that kind of helps to amp down that fear if you realize that essentially your audience wants you to do well because when you don't do well, when you're up there and you're a train wreck and you're so nervous and you're terrified and you lose your place and you embarrass yourself, what's interesting is oftentimes the audience feels embarrassment too. Like, so they feel bad for you. They feel like even though they're sitting safely in the audience, they see you up there struggling and they feel that embarrassment for you. There's that connection between a speaker and audience that is always there. So if you tell yourself, hey, this audience wants me to do well, because when you deliver an effective presentation, your audience is able to relax and enjoy what you're saying. But when you're up there struggling, your audience struggles with you. So in some ways, it kind of helps to make people feel a little bit better about public speaking if they realize that the audience is actually more on your side. Unless, I say, you've got arch enemies in the audience. And in that case, I can't help you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah, that, I think that's really good to remember. And I, I'm sure we can all think of a time when um, when we felt horror, like, yeah, like mutual embarrassment when mm-hmm. somebody was, was flubbing it and not... Not in a judgy way, but in a, right. like, oh my gosh. That Empathetic. You're, yeah. you're feeling empathy, right? Yeah. yeah. So that's the first reason why I think people dread it so much. And I think another big part of the dread of public speaking is the anticipation, right? Like the dread of, oh my God, I got to go up there next and I got to say this and oh, I'm so nervous. And you get that, you know, horrible feeling in the pit of your stomach and you just think, oh, I can't do this. I can't do this. And I've got a really good story actually with that. I am... Um, Part of my course, the students not only have to give an impromptu speech, they also have to give a quick five-minute speech. And I had a student once, right before his five-minute speech, pulled me aside before class, and he looked bad. Oh, he was pale, clammy, shaking, saying, oh, Rebecca, I can't do this. I'm going to pass out if I go in front of people. I just can't do it. And I didn't know what to do because I have an obligation of making him actually do the assignments. Right. But I did not want to be known as the only lecturer in the College of Engineering to have a student pass out (laughs) in front of everybody because he looked bad, right? So, you know, I gave him a huge pep talk. I said, oh, you can do this. You know, I'm on your side. Meanwhile, I'm like crossing all my fingers and toes, hoping this kid's going to be okay because he does not look good. And, you know, he got up there and he gave a flawless presentation. Like it was, I couldn't believe it. And the reason why is because that anticipation had really gotten to him. But because he had been practiced and prepared, he got up there, and as soon as he started, it is so much better than the period right before he started. Right. So maybe you can, maybe that resonates with you. Like, it always feels worse right before you walk up, and then once you get started, it's way better. Yeah, I, I think um, the, the more practiced I get, the less I have that, or, or the more I can, like, reason with myself about what's going on when right. I'm going through that anxiety. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, I know early on, yeah, even though you know you've got it down, um, the adrenaline and, exactly. and it just piles on, right? After a while, you're just worrying about the worry, not about the speaking. Right. And oftentimes, it feels way worse for us. And so, like, you may think, oh, I looked so horrible up there. I, I just shook the entire time. And I'm sure the audience noticed all these things about me. But in all honesty, the audience rarely notices that kind of stuff Hmm. unless you call attention to it, right? So if you're up there speaking and you can feel your leg twitching, I guarantee you it feels way worse to you than it does to the audience. Unless, like I said, all of a sudden in the middle of your speech, you stop and say, oh, I just want to apologize real quick for the fact that my leg's twitching right now. I can't control this. (laughs) My next point, right? Because then (laughs) as soon as you do that. Looking at your leg. Exactly, right? And so... 
audiences, like I said before, they have that goodwill for you and they're willing to overlook you having these nervous cues as long as you don't call attention to it and apologize for it. If you can just avoid that, then uh, yeah, you'll be good to go. Do you like public speaking? Do I like public speaking? Hmm. Well, considering what I do pretty much is public speaking, like I consider teaching to be pretty much public speaking. Sure. So for the most part, I do because I'm really passionate about what I teach. I really believe a lot in, in making people better communicators and giving them the tools to succeed. So in that case, yeah, I, I think I do like public speaking, but it's kind of a double-edged sword because I find myself to be quite introverted. So I find I have to really amp myself up to go and teach all day. But then by the time I get home, I'm pretty much out of words. <laughs> right. So, but yeah, I think for the most part, I don't mind it so much, especially if it's something that I really believe in. I don't have a problem public speaking, no. Do you think people can learn to like it if they're if they consider themselves to have an actual phobia about it, right? can people work through that? Or is that forever part of who they are? Well, you know, there are some people that are just born good speakers. They have that natural charisma and it just comes easy for them. And yeah, those people pretty much everyone else hates because it comes easy for them, <laughs> right? But what I teach, the discipline that I come from is the discipline of rhetoric, which started thousands of years ago in ancient Greece. So give and, us an overview of rhetoric, because okay, I don't know if, I mean, I think a lot of us have heard that term, but not all right. of us know what it means. No, okay, exactly. Well, you know, you asked, can people, you know, are they have to be born good speakers, or can they actually learn it? Well, going right to the definition of what is the discipline of rhetoric, Aristotle came up with the definition, and he, he says, rhetoric is the technique of finding, in any situation, the available means of persuasion. So what's key about that is the fact that Aristotle says rhetoric's a technique. Okay, so a technique is something that you can learn. Hmm. So I would make the argument that even if you are terrified and you think that you're the world's worst public speaker, I think if you're given the right tools and you give yourself that practice and preparation, I think you can be a good public speaker. I don't think you have has to be some kind of intrinsic quality. I mean, having intrinsic qualities, yeah, helps, but it's not a necessary precondition to being a good speaker. So rhetoric, a lot of times we hear rhetoric in the media, people often confuse rhetoric with propaganda, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, Stephen Harper's rhetoric, right? Well, really, if you look at the heart of what that ancient discipline is, is it's really about influence and persuasion and getting your idea across in the most effective way possible. And so that's where I'm coming from when I talk about using rhetoric. It's um, being able to come up with those tools so that you're not wasting your time, you're not wasting your audience's time. And you're able to come across in a way that not only is is effective, but it's also compelling. It's interesting the um, the notion of persuasion. I don't think when I get up to speak a lot of the time mm-hmm. that I think of what I'm doing is uh, I don't think of what I'm doing as persuading people. Right. Well. I don't mean persuasion necessarily in selling something, mm-hmm. right? But you can uh, use persuasion in a way that you're able to influence people to accept your idea, right? Or to accept what it is you have to say. So so I like using not only persuasion, but also influence when it comes to understanding what rhetoric is. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, I, I, I think so. I think what I meant um, was that maybe if, I approached my preparation for speaking with the idea that I was persuading people. Right. That would help focus uh, my preparation instead of focusing on like how nervous do I look? No, for sure. For sure. True. But right. Right. What I'm saying persuasive. Yeah, no, I think that's a, a good way to think about it. And so when I started teaching my students, the main course that I teach is a required course. So admittedly, I have some very, uh, I have a captive audience, to put it nicely, (laughs) who don't want to be there, but they have to be there. And the first thing they always ask me, because most of my students are from a very technical background, so the College of Engineering, the College of Agriculture. And so they they come to me, they say, okay, well, just give me the formula. Give me the formula of what I have to say, (laughs) and I will apply the formula, and I will be done. 
i will churn out as many speeches as you like me to exactly right and in some ways i actually do have a bit of a formula that goes right back to rhetoric so would you like to hear the formula I would like very much to hear that yes okay so after Aristotle defined what is rhetoric, he kind of boiled down the situation to understand what's necessary when you start to communicate. And so you first looked at what are the components that are involved when you communicate. And so he noticed that, well, you have to have a speaker, obviously someone who's communicating, which means you have to have a message, which you're directing towards an audience, right? So those three factors are always at play anytime you communicate. And so he called that the rhetorical triangle. But he took it a step further trying to, again, get underneath the layers of what makes communication most effective. And what he came up with is what he called the three modes of appeal, or they're also known as those means of persuasion. And so if you can follow these three modes, and I can really quickly distill them because I've taught this enough that I can pretty much do it in five minutes. But if you think of these three modes or three tools of communication, as you plan your message, you will be more effective than if you only focus on the fact that, oh, my God, I've got to give this speech and I don't know what to do. Awesome. Three, three is a good number. Three is good. Three is a nice odd number. Yeah. Okay. So the first thing you have to have, you have to have what he called logos. Logos. So having logos means you have to have a well-constructed message. Okay. So that's pretty obvious. We, you have to have something to say. But there's some things you have to think about in the process of, of putting together your message. The first thing I would suggest is you have to have a clear purpose. Okay, you have to know what it is you have to say right. and what it is you want the audience to walk away with. Because if you don't have that in mind, you can imagine how things can go south really quickly. So part of having that clear purpose means that you need to have some structure to what it is you want to say. So having a certain amount of points you want to make sure you come across. Um, and when you're giving your speech, recognize that you have to forecast those for the audience because the audience is hearing this for the first time. Mm -hmm. And if, you, if you're not clear about how many points you're going to be talking about, and if you don't signal that to the audience, your audience is going to be lost, right? And they're not going to care. The last point I would say when it comes to having a good, solid message or logos appeals is you want to avoid memorizing your speech or worse yet, reading your PowerPoint slides. So Don't. somewhere in between. Yeah, like what I like to do, I like to teach uh, more of an extemporaneous style, which is basically having a series of like an outline. Like it could be a well fleshed out outline, but you don't want to write out everything word for word because it's so boring to listen to someone who's got a memorized speech. Yeah. Right? Like, I mean, think of all the times you've picked up the phone to a telemarketer. Like, how engaging is that? Right. Right? So. Yeah, you don't want to memorize your speech and you don't want to put too much, if you're, if you're using PowerPoint, you don't want to put too much on your slides because that's also the worst is basically reading slide after slide after slide. Totally. Right? <laughs> no, I mean, I've never seen a presentation like that. Oh, right. What's your opinion about <laughs> one thing about having like the yeah. number of points you're going to be making identified? Yeah. Do you think you should lead with your strong points first or oh. lead with your weak points and work up oh. to your strong points or does that depend? Can I just say yes to all that? <laughs> like it's, this is a really hard question to answer because it's totally contextual, right? Okay. Like I think it depends on the individual case you're making and you, I mean, ultimately your goal is to keep the audience engaged, right? Okay. Yeah. So if you think the best way to keep your audience engaged is to start strong and then kind of go a little weaker, then I'd say go for it. But if you think it's the other way around, obviously you have to keep your audience in mind the whole time, right? So that's really where people go off when it comes to this logos part of the three modes of appeal is they often will think too much about what it is I have to say and not about what the audience needs to hear. Right. Right. So. All right. All right. So that's the first logos. Right. Next, pathos, pathos or pathos. And that is linked to the audience portion of that rhetorical triangle. And what that tells us is that we have to connect to our audience. And so Aristotle said that humans are not persuaded by logic alone. So if you only rely on those logos appeals, you're going to lose the people you talk to. Mm -hmm. So you have to find some way to, to make that audience connection, to build that rapport and emotionally connect to who you're talking to. Because otherwise, the audience won't 
care about what you're saying if you're not making those efforts to actually talk to them specifically. So yeah, making your audience, making it more audience centered and interesting, right? And mm-hmm. understanding that you have to think about, you know, what does my audience know? What do they not know? What do they want to know? And that's what's going to guide what you put into your presentation. Not, oh, I think this is so cool. This is what I want to say. Mm-hmm. That's not as important as thinking about what does your audience needs to hear. I Guess We're Grownups Now is sponsored by Campaign Monitor. Campaign Monitor makes it easy for you to create, send, and optimize your email marketing campaigns. Design beautiful emails in minutes with their easy-to-use template builder. Send more relevant emails by displaying content that caters to your individual subscribers. And best of all, your emails will look great on any device. It doesn't get any easier than this. Thanks to Campaign Monitor for supporting good stuff and I Guess We're Grownups Now. How um, How is the best way to find, if you're going into a room full of strangers and you don't yeah. necessarily know a lot about them, what's the best way to find that out? To find well, out who they are and what they might want to know. Well, it's always good to think of the context of where you're speaking, right? So, you know, thinking about what kind of presentation is it, um, in taking some educated guesses if necessary, um, you know, talking to the people. Like, so if you were an invited speaker somewhere, you know, there's no problem with actually talking to the people who invited you to kind of get a general idea of who you're speaking to. Mm-hmm. Um, I often like to encourage my students to think about someone in the audience who might be opposed to what you're saying and figure out ways to address some of those objections or some of those questions in your presentation so that you, you take down those audience barriers, mm-hmm. right? So thinking about someone who's either opposed to you or someone that's completely ignorant um, and really trying your best to break down anything that could get between yourself and the audience. That's And that's part of being a thoughtful speaker. And a lot of people don't take the time to do that, right? They think the only job a speaker has is to put the message out there. But that's just one part of the three, right? So... You don't want to, You want to make sure you take that time to actually think about who's hearing this message and how can I make them actually feel like I'm talking to them specifically and not just a set of people in chairs in front of me. Right, and not just dumping your brain. Right, and they pick up what they want. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so it's. I always like to tell my students that you should, you know, if you can, especially before you start a presentation, find some way to grab your audience's attention. Hmm. Right. So we call those attention getters or hooks. Right. So how can I hook my audience into what it is I have to say? So there could be a number of ways that you do that. You know, you could be, you know, using an inspirational quote or some kind of statistic or using some kind of prop. But you want to be careful. I always I always caution students. You don't want to shock your audience. Right. Mm -hmm. But uh, you want to make sure that they're actually open to what you say. You can't assume that they're going to be tracking with you from the the time you open your mouth, right? Right. You really have that first couple of minutes to grab their attention and persuade them to listen to the rest of your message. So um, can I give you an example that um, I did one time? Please. I thought yes. I, thought I was very clever, <laughs> probably because I'm a mom, but I was doing a talk in front of um, high school students who were considering going into comp sci at right. university. So yeah. the university invited me in to talk to them about, you know, careers in comp sci and why they might be interested in in uh, going into comp sci. Right. Um, so I knew I was talking to 17-year-olds. And I don't know a whole lot about 17-year-olds. The last time I talked to a 17-year-old, I think I was 17. <laughs> so, so, so I'm like, ah, how do I do this? Like, this is going to be so boring Right. them. And yet I think that if... I thought, you know what, if I if I was one-on-one with these people, I think they would might have questions that I could answer anyway. Yeah. So what I did was I, instead of having slides, I, I printed out my slides, basically, and all my slides were, were questions I thought that students should have about mm-hmm. their career. And I put them in envelopes, one slide in each envelope, and then I handed them to, the, to random students in the audience, and I got them to open the envelope and read the question to me. Oh, yeah. And then I answered it. So it was a way of keeping them engaged and giving them words that maybe they hadn't even thought about, which obviously played to my, like, content. But it was like, 
how do you keep 17-year-olds from completely tuning out? At least I was guaranteed that one student every three minutes was going to be at least fake engaged in what I was Yeah. Thinking. Well, did it go over pretty well? Like, oh, I don't know. Whatever. Yeah. I got through the talk. and <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I think some kids were into it and others weren't. Whatever. Well, you can't guarantee, right? But no, like, at least you made some kind of effort. Yeah. Well, my favorite story of what not to do happened to me when I was in university. I was in a tutorial for a communication course, and the leader of the tutorial was this older lady. And, of course, you know, at 18, she was probably only in her 40s, but I thought she was ancient, right? <laughs> so she would always open our tutorial by giving us a quick speech. So we get to class, and we're sitting there. She stands up in front of us, starts to give her speech, when all of a sudden she stops, grabs her chest, and collapses in front of the floor. Okay, oh, my God, what just happened, right? So half the class is running up to the front to revive her. I Someone yelled at me to go call 911. So I'm I'm running out the door because this is before cell phones, right, back in yeah. the olden days. I'm running out to go call 911 from the office phone. And that is when she jumps up off the floor and says, and this, students, is why you all should know CPR. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, man, I was terrified, right? So that was... Not a, I mean, I, she got my attention, but I was like terrified the rest of the class. So yeah, you want to be engaging, but not so engaging that you lose your audience. <laughs> not they run out of the room. No kidding. Oh, it was brutal. So yeah, but I mean, I like what you did because it really it shows an effort you made to kind of put yourself. I mean, you made yourself a little bit vulnerable there, hey, because you didn't know the order necessarily, totally. did you? No, right? I didn't know the order. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, you, you, drew, you drew them in as much as you could. Yeah. And yeah, it's good. I like that. Y'all out there are free to steal my idea. I think still think it's a solid yes, idea. I think so too. Anytime you can get away from PowerPoint, I'm oh, all totally. in favor of that. Yeah. Oh my God. So yeah. Okay. So that we did two of the three. So we did yes. logos, which is the message having, you know, the evidence, the logic of the message and then having pathos, which is when you connect. And oftentimes when we talk about pathos, we're talking about connecting on an emotional level. Mm-hmm. So that's something else to think about. The last of the three is what he called ethos. Ethos. And that's directly connected to the speaker's ethics or their credibility. So after you've set up your message and you've thought of how to connect to the audience, then it's your job to figure out how can I get my audience to trust me and get them to understand what I'm saying and build up that credibility with my audience. Because while you need to have all three in your message, you can understand that if you have really low ethos, you're gonna, it's going to affect your pathos and your logos. Like, if I can't trust you, mm-hmm. then I'm not going to listen to your message, and I'm going to question how you're connecting to me. So, yeah, the combination of all three of those, if you can think of all three of those when you're setting up your message, that is a formula for success, hmm. I think. Yeah. So what are effective ways of setting up um, ethos for yourself? Um, like yeah. Like, different ways people do that. Right. Well, Aristotle said there's three measures of it. You can look to someone's goodwill, their good character, or their good judgment. Okay. So sometimes you can establish credibility by your experience, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, describing what you do for a living and just experience you've had, your personal connection to the topic. Like if you're invested at all, oftentimes that's a way to, to build up your credibility. Sometimes you can build credibility by linking to other sources. So, you know, actually doing some research in the area that you're talking about and showing that research to somebody. Um, But oftentimes, these three modes, they're all connected, right? So, if I can tell as an audience member, you're doing your best to connect to me personally, that's going to increase your credibility in my eyes, right? Mm -hmm. Versus someone who's just trying to to, uh, impress me using a lot of jargon that I don't understand, right? Right. So, yeah, that's kind of a quick overview, crash course, if you will, into the discipline of rhetoric. Woohoo, we can all skip your class now. Yay! Oh, and I was going to tell you, I'm going to send you a link to this great video I always show my class. It's kind of a reward for sitting through my lecture. But (laughs) the video is, it combines my geeky pop culture nature with my day job. And it shows the three modes of appeal, a la old school Star Trek. Nice. I will put yes. it in the show notes and people can yes, watch that. That's awesome. exactly. So now you can see where Spock, Kirk, and Bones line up in terms of the modes of appeal. Oh, very clever. All right. Yes. Cool. Okay. Um, what do you think are some key tips for getting better at public speaking? Well, in addition to knowing those modes of appeal, the one 
thing I always encourage people to do is to prepare and practice, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. prepare and practice. And so you can prepare, you know, obviously by taking time to construct your message, you know, don't think that you can just wing it on the spot because that is just a recipe for disaster Mm -hmm. for most people. I mean, some people can, but for a lot of people, you know, sitting back in your easy chair the night before giving a speech, you are brilliant in your head. Oh my God, I'm going to say all these great things. You know, but then you get in front of people and you get all these eyes staring at you and you become an idiot. So, yeah, prepare. Prepare is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and also part of preparing, in addition to preparing your actual text, I would say prepare for technical issues because... Mm-hmm. Huge deal. Yeah, because as much as I love technology, it can also screw with you. So, you know, not being so reliant on the technology, having a plan B is always a yeah. good thing. Yeah. So, you know, how are you going to handle it if the projector stops working, right? right? Or the video doesn't load or your pointer's not working? Like, how are you going to, you know, still be able to deliver your message? Right. So, yeah. So that's part of the preparing. Um, in terms of practicing, I'm a big, I'm a big favor of practicing out loud before you give a presentation. Mm-hmm. Right. Because, again, it's that whole what I said before about being brilliant in your head. But then when you start to speak, there's somehow some kind of disconnect from your brain to your mouth, I find. Mm -hmm. And like, yeah, you're brilliant in your head, but when it comes out your mouth, not so brilliant. And some phrases that you plan to say are just plain hard to say. Exactly, right? So practicing out loud, especially if you have a time constraint, because there's nothing worse than being asked to speak for a certain amount of time and then either coming up short or worse yet, going long. Yeah. Right? So if you practice it out loud from start to finish with a timer, you get a general feel for where you're at. And it's kind of a, it's a good dry run for you uh, when it comes in front of the audience. So I think it's a, depending on the type of presentation, I would always encourage people to at least run it through once or twice before, just to kind of make sure you got your head around what it is you want to say. Mm-hmm. One thing yeah. I've found that I often find when saying it loud instead of just reading it on the paper is I notice words I've repeated right really close together exactly so some key word that is supposed to stand out that I end mm-hmm. up using twice on the same like slide right um and you're like oh I need to change one of those mm-hmm. no yeah, yeah and, and in this day and age too it's so easy to record yourself so as horrifying you of an idea <laughs> so as horrifying of an idea is it to have to watch yourself on film uh, it's also so enlightening to be able to see if you have any ticks that you didn't notice before. So if you tend to flap your arms like a bird when you right. speak, or if you tend to repeat a word over and over again, you know, it's better to catch it before you're in front of an audience than to all of a sudden notice people are taking notes, but they're taking notes of how many times you've said, um, <laughs> right. Right. So, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, those are just some of the, the basic tips. I think the other thing I would talk about, has to do with your delivery. So that's actually how you how you look and how you sound for your audience. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, a lot of stuff I've talked about up to this point really is about the preparation, right? And I think that's a huge part of public speaking is giving yourself that time to prepare. But there's another huge part, which is, you know, how you come across to the audience. Because um, your delivery is the sight and the sound of your speech. And having a solid delivery really helps the audience to engage with your message and it helps them to um, process what it is you're saying in a way that's much easier. So having an idea of how you look and how you sound is really important. So there's a couple of things here. First thing I like to talk about has to do with your nonverbal communication. So can you think of anything that would stand out in terms of people's nonverbal communication as a public speaker? Oh, like making eye contact right. or just staring down or pacing or waving their arms around. Or right. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of that. Like, So the first thing you mentioned was eye contact. That's the huge one. Okay. So looking at the people you're talking to is the first way you initially connect to somebody. So that's one thing to always think about is, can I actually look, you know, can I scan the room? I'm actually looking at people. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a huge way to to get people to listen to what you have to say. So like if you're just reading your notes or if you're just reading the slides or if you're just staring at the back wall, you're basically giving people to, permission to stop listening to you. 
It's so you need really to really hard to look at people in the eye while you're talking. It is. It is. But you should do it. Why I'm a podcaster. <laughs> exactly. Right. I mean, it's interesting, right? Because nonverbal communication, if you look at the research done in this area, one, one pivotal study found that over half of the meaning of what we say, so 55% of our message is just in the visual delivery of it. Yeah. So just how you hold yourself is in your body. And then it said 38% of how we're understood is basically in how we sound. So in the verbal, right? Not even the words themselves, but just how we our voice sounds. Just the audio of it. Exactly. Right. And then the the can you guess how much percentage of our messages in the actual words of our well, message? I'm no math major. Oh, oh wait, I was math, but I've lost track. Seven percent. Seven percent. I don't think that adds up to hundred though. I don't know. I don't think it does. But that was the one. That was the big study. It was the fifty-five, thirty-eight, seven percent study. Nice. So, but yeah, only seven percent, or like a very small percentage, let's say, is in the actual words of our message, right? So if your focus is on scripting every single word you have to say, you're not going to come across very well to your audience, right? Right. So we have to understand that what we do with our body in terms of how we hold ourselves physically, how we sound, that often speaks louder than what we actually say. And so if there's ever a conflict between what we say and the words we're actually using, the audience is going to go with the body language with the unspoken, right? So if I tell you, I'm so happy to be here and I sound terrified or I sound angry, you're going to go with that unspoken component of the tone of my voice before you go with the words of what I just said. Okay, here is my life goal. I've just added this to my list of things I want to accomplish before I die. Mm-hmm. And that is to give a very fucked up speech in which I say the words yes. that I know I'm supposed to say, but don't believe, Yes. but communicate my message with attitude and body language. Do it. It's so oh my fun. Gosh, like an ironic so talk. Nope. Yep. Totally. Oh. Well, because the definition I give my students, like what is the definition of tone? Well, I always define tone as the attitude of the speaker towards the, the message and also towards the audience right? So is that attitude, is that embedded emotional attitude that comes through our words? So it can be either the attitude we have towards what we're saying or to who we're talking to. Right. Right. So because audiences, like you have to understand that when we talk to people, we're not talking to robots. At least most of us aren't. Right. I know. We're talking to like human beings that don't just decode, but they interpret. Right. Right. So if we know that, then we know how important it is that we don't give them any information that could be misinterpreted. So, yeah. Interesting. So nonverbal, right. um, visual. Okay, so how we look. So I already said, don't apologize for things you can't control. Mm-hmm. So our body will betray us. <laughs> I does. sweat. I sweat right? like a crazy person. Okay, yeah. So sweating, um, red face. Mm-hmm. I get red face blotchy. Oh, brutal. Um, hands shaky, like our body will do strange things to us when we're in front of an audience, right? You can't control that. Like you just can't, like you can't control the sweating, right? You know, then not, you know, then to wear dark clothes right? (laughs) or to layers or something, right? (laughs) If you know your hand shakes, then you know, I'm not going to hold a piece of paper in my hands when I talk to somebody because I will shake, right? I hold a card or I put it on the table, Right. There you go. Exactly. Right. So control what you can. Right. So you can't control those things, but you can you can make allowances for things like that. Right. So think about that. Think about how you stand. Okay, a lot of people don't think about that. But how are you actually standing up? Are your legs crossed as you're talking to somebody? Mm -hmm. Are you leaning back? You know, you, you need to have an actual confident posture. Um, And sometimes you don't have a podium to hide behind. So how are you going to, you know, a lot of times my students, and this is the funniest thing, when I get a big Huskies player who's terrified, (laughs) trying to hide behind a three by five card. So cute. Oh, and then they end up wrapping their arms around their body, like like they're covering their vital organs. Wow. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And they don't know they're doing this. Right. 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 But having that awareness of how you stand, that helps your audience process your message. Right. So using those gestures in a way that draws your audience in. And doesn't distract them. That's key. That's really key. 
So, yeah, it's hard, though, because, like, you know you're in front of people, right? But uh, having that awareness and making sure that you know that anything you do with your body is being read as information to the audience. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah. So it's not just what you're saying, but it's also how you're saying it. The last thing, which is my big pet peeve, has to do with vocal delivery. And so that's how you actually sound. Mm -hmm. So in terms of vocal delivery, you want to make sure you have that strong presence and resonance, right? You want to have your voice stand out in a way that's compelling. And the thing I noticed when I moved to Canada (laughs) that drives me crazy is this rising intonation that we tend to have at the end of our sentences like this. So I'm talking to you about public speaking. And it's a really important topic I, I like a lot. And I'm really looking forward to talking to you about today. And I'm feeling very self-conscious right now. <laughs> exactly, right? I just did it myself. <laughs> as soon as I start talking about it, I do it. And I mean, I don't think we reason... said A yet, though. Right, right. And we do that. And why we do that? Well, when you ask questions, it's actually an audience engagement strategy. Okay. Because you're asking the audience to fill in the answer to that question. But if everything you say sounds like a question, well, then you sound like an idiot, right? You sound like you don't know what you're talking about. So I've got another clip I'm going to send to you of this great spoken word poet who uh, basically talks about that, about, about this notion we have of trying to sound like we don't have that confidence to make statements and we have to ask questions all the time. So you'll have to put that in the show notes because it really illustrates my point. And there are certain stations here in Saskatoon that I cannot listen to because all the DJs talk like that and it drives me crazy. That is one thing that I notice is probably difficult. The most difficult for me, the tone difference between an interview podcast and a monologue podcast is I'm not quite sure yet, especially when I'm sitting alone in my office, how to deliver the monologue in in any sort of connecting way. And I mean, I think they are connecting with people, but mostly from a content perspective. Yeah. like it takes practice to deliver statements in a way that is verbally interest, orally interesting. Right. A U R orally. Right. Um, but um, still natural speaking too. It's weird. Well, it's and weird. what I would encourage, <laughs> exactly. Well, what I would encourage is to resist the urge of writing things out. And to have trust in who you are and what it is you have to say. So really just work from an outline. Because then it sounds conversational. You still are prepared enough. You know what it is you want to say. But every time you say it, you say it a little differently. Right. So that you still have that compelling nature to your voice. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. So avoid that rising intonation because, oh, my God, it drives me crazy. (laughs) And and it sounds bad, but I find with women, we tend to do that more. Sure. And I hate that. Like I, cause it gives the audience again, permission to check out and you don't want to give them that permission. Interesting. So avoid that. Um, I've already said, avoid memorizing your speech. Uh, the other thing, as I soon as I said that I'm, I used a speech tag that always happens, (laughs) but avoid saying, uh, and, um, as much as you can, just because it's a way to fill your speech with these words that don't add meaning. So if you have a couple of them in your speech, that's fine. Right. But oftentimes when people are unprepared or they don't want to have that pause, they stick in these words and it could really distract people from what it is you have to say. Or worse, some people have it as a verbal tick where they're not yeah. even pausing. They just oh, yeah. say yeah. their like or their um or their, yeah. Which is why if you record yourself, you'd be able to see that, right? If right. you were able to see that right away. So. Yeah. So, I mean, how you look and how you sound, that's a big part of how you come across. And so the other tip I would say is just be aware of that. After you've done the preparation time, really think about how are you looking and sounding to your audience. What's a a memorable public speaking thing you've done besides like the podcast that you talked about and your day-to-day job? Does anything particularly stick out in your mind? Well, I get asked to do quite a few guest lectures on the university. So. I've given lectures in the College of Agriculture. I've done a few in College of Medicine mm. and the College of uh, Education. So I've done quite a few just guest lecturing. So that's my main thing is what I do in terms of guest speaking. But I'm not without flaw. Mm. I do have some disasters that I can Tell. think of. Yes, yes. yes. Well, okay. So I was the maid of honor for a girlfriend. 
and she wanted me to give the speech. And so I thought, oh, you know, we're such good friends and I've got so many great things to say. I'm just I'm not going to prepare a speech because I have so much to say. I will just get in front of people after having three glasses of champagne and I will be eloquent and I will come across so well. Yeah, that didn't happen. (laughs) It was awful. It was awful. And I was so embarrassed because I honestly thought I could do it and I couldn't. So I taught myself that lesson of always be prepared because if you're not, then you will have one of those face loss type of experiences that your best friend who you're made of honor with will never let you forget. Yeah, that's probably one that I think people think they can wing is the right speech. And totally. You're probably not doing your friend a favor. No, no. I mean, it, the thing is, like, if, if you were invited to do that, this is a special occasion. Why wouldn't you prepare something for somebody, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Sure. So I feel I feel really bad about that. I mean, even if you blow it then, at least um, the person knows that you took the time to write down a couple things on cue cards. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, are you pro-alcohol before speaking or... Not necessarily. Ooh, that's a good question. For my students, I always say no. <laughs> you will not drink before a 9.30 a.m. class. No. Um, but I mean, I, I don't, I'm not against alcohol. Like if, if a quick drink will loosen you up a little mm, bit, yeah. right? But I mean, the thing is you still want to have your ner- your abilities intact, right? So the thing about being a really good public speaker is being able to adapt and adjust on the spot, Mm -hmm. right? So if you have a a drink or two and it kind of dulls those senses, that might not be a very good strategy for you to do. Yeah. What do you think is the worst thing about being a grown-up? Okay, so I have thought a lot about this question because I knew it was coming. And I knew the next question is the best thing. You've prepared. I have, I have, because I, I practice what I preach sometimes. And so I have one answer for both. Oh, great, okay. Okay, so the worst thing and the best thing about being a grown-up, self-awareness. Mm, tell me about this. Okay, yeah, so I've been in quite a bit of therapy lately. <laughs> if you follow me on Twitter, you probably will know why. And yeah, like, I find that it's great to know who you are. And the older you get, the more I find that I'm becoming more aware of who I am. Mm-hmm. And so in some ways, that's really empowering. It's like, you know, this is who I am. If you don't like it, well, then that's your bad. This is who I am. But then it, in some ways, it also really is, is difficult because you have that awareness of, oh my God, this is who I am. I can't change, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And so it's it can be kind of terrifying too at the same time to know that, you know, who you are sometimes turns other people off. And so, and the good moments, this just feels really empowering. But in the bad moments, you think, oh, really? This is who I am. Like, can I change? I don't know if I can change. So, right. yeah. So it's a best and a worst thing, I would say. That's, That's my very deep philosophical answer anyway. I, oh, I think all the best answers to you, that set of questions that I have <laughs> are the ones where it's like, yeah, and the best thing is exactly the same thing. It's like, yeah, yeah. you've got adulthood exactly nailed. What? I, Great. I think for me, the part of self-awareness that that I find like troubling and awesome at the same time is that when I was 20, I thought I was self-aware. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. And and when I thought when I was 30, I thought I was self-aware. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And now I think those people are idiots. Yeah. And so I wonder, is yeah. 50-year-old Carrie going to think that 40-year-old Carrie was an idiot? Yeah. And the answer is probably like, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. But you're self-aware enough to know that about yourself. True. There and you I go. I'm self-aware enough to know that not only am I a good and decent person, I'm also a horrible person and that those things aren't like that they can exist at the same time. And right. they're true of most people. Mm-hmm. Nope, anyway. I agree. Yeah. yeah. Self-awareness. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Uh, is there anything you would like to ask me? There has actually. I prepared for this question too. Oh boy. All right. This well, scary. Yeah. So we've already talked about podcasting and public speaking, but my question for you is, do you ever get nervous before you record? And what are your personal strategies for overcoming nerves? Because I like to collect different ways people kind of calm themselves down and psych themselves up for things. Yeah. Um, I definitely get nervous before I record. Um, I 
am an over-preparer. Mm-hmm. Um, not in so much uh, rehearsing the words, mm-hmm. but in terms of being physically prepared. Like, I am obsessive about having an outline for the show. Yeah. And I set up my audio equipment in plenty of time before. I'm never rushing last minute to get right. to um, our, you know, our, the setup recording time. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not very spontaneous when it comes to setting up podcasts or um, recording. Although I, I think I now have the skills where I could be, but right. I, I definitely like to be very, very prepared. So mm-hmm. in some ways that helps me deal with the anxiety beforehand. In other ways, it unnecessarily builds it. Right. Like I sometimes play around with being a little bit last minute mm-hmm. as a way of just practicing, you know, living on yep. the edge just a little bit because I don't mm-hmm. have to be like hyper prepared all the exactly. time. Exactly. You can trust yourself. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's trusting myself. I don't mm-hmm. always think of it that way, but that is a really good way of putting it. Mm-hmm. So trusting my own skills, my like the fact that I have practiced, the fact that mm-hmm. I, this is episode number 15. I've right. done this before. I can do it again. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. So, th- that um, I've uh, started uh, not caring about <laughs> sweating <laughs> <laughs> and preparing my wardrobe if it's a public yes. speak to yep. like layers or whatever so yep. that I know I'm not going to sweat through. It's so embarrassing to admit on the air, but there's, there is literally nothing I can do about it. I've been doing nope. public speaking for like, yeah, like most of my life, you mm-hmm. know, 30 years or something like that, I will never stop being not sweating. Like, mm-hmm. it even happens if I'm having just a personal phone call with somebody, but I'm like totally excited about it. Are you I'm sweating right now? Bad. Are you sweating oh, right now? Of course I am. <laughs> I'm sweating thinking about it. Like, and it doesn't, ha- it doesn't have to do with heat. Like the room can yeah. be totally cold yeah. and I'll get a cold sweat. Anyway. Sweat. Well, it's so the way our body betrays us, right? Well, right. It's adrenaline. Yeah, it's totally. Whatever. I get it for soccer, too. Like, when I'm mm-hmm. going out for a game, it's like, I get this nervous sweat. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Whatevs. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit more socially acceptable. When you're <laughs> <wearing> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. But, yeah. So, I dress for it. Like, if I'm doing a public speech, um, I make sure that what I plan to wear works with that. Yep. <laughs> Um, I definitely don't like to have a lot on my slides. Like if I have yeah. slides, I keep them minimal. Good. I've done a talk with just pictures on my slides. Mm-hmm. I've done a talk with like one word or something on each slide. Um, have you ever seen those uh, websites that compare Bill Gates to Steve Jobs and how they would do slides? No. But, oh, but I've seen I should... enough of both of their speeches yeah. to know. Yeah. And isn't that interesting because, you know, Gates is the guy behind PowerPoint and yet he can't use PowerPoint. Like, (laughs) ironic. In the Alanis sense of the word, anyway. (laughs) Where can people find you on the internet, Rebecca? Well, you can find me on Twitter. My name is Girl Meets World. G-R-R-R-L Meets World. I'll put a and, link in the show notes. Yeah, for people yeah, find, you. find me there. And if you want to read a really sad blog, you can go to my blog. I would not recommend it right now. But uh, there's lots of archives there. So you can kind of see I, I, I keep it because I see it as an artifact of who I am. So All it's right. kind of very personal to me. And it's, it's there. So don't hold anything against me and what you read there. But yeah, it's there if you want to look at it. Well, and also so. if you're going through a transition in life in a yeah. liminal area, you might identify it with. Yeah. Well. And I'll, and I'll send you my uh, LinkedIn profile. So that's my big professional site. So you can find me on LinkedIn too. Yeah. Nice. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being our guest and for laying your expertise down on us. It's been great. Great. Well, thanks for having me on Carrie. And that's the show. Show notes and links for all the things we talked about can be found at goodstuff.fm slash grownups slash 15. We're also on iTunes, where you can download and subscribe to the show for free. And you can also rate and review the show if you liked it. Thanks again to our sponsor, Campaign Monitor. If you have a business that's interested in marketing to the audience of I Guess We're Grownups Now, please contact me using the Get In Touch link at goodstuff.fm slash grownups. Thanks again to Kyle for finding me the music. Do take a chance to listen to his podcast, Transmission, on goodstuff.fm. And thanks to Sun Channel Music for creating the music. You can find them on Audio Jungle. Also on goodstuff.fm, 
check out the return of non-breaking space a podcast about digital art design and development starring christopher schmidt and sam capilla their new episode and back catalog is available at goodstuff.fm slash nbsp thanks again to my guest rebecca bennett and thanks to you for listening see you next time on i guess we're grown-ups now 